Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 79, recorded on August 9th of 2019, the Photo Geekery podcast, where my, uh, uh, me, your host, Don Kamarechka, digs into the news of the week to just kind of find the, the geekiest, the, uh, the techiest, the stuff that we can find uh, sort of under the hood opinions on uh, as, as we like to opine on the internet, and so too does everybody else. With me today in the co-pilot seat is uh, Brian Matias. Brian, uh, he's been on before. He's a, he's a great buddy of mine, and uh, uh, I've always loved his opinions whenever I hear his voice, and it's great to have his voice back on Photo Geek Weekly. Brian, thanks for being here. Thanks, Don. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be back. I, I always enjoy... I, I definitely enjoy this, this show in particular just because you're not afraid to really dive into some of the the geekier side of things and <laughs> well, uh, that's that's where the fun is right and i don't want to regurgitate the same stuff that everybody else is talking about right exactly it's not just like hey you, you know here's the latest headline i i do enjoy as a you know kind of a photo geek myself uh it's it's nice to to as you said opine sometimes commiserate with a fellow uh consummate photographer Welcome to the big word language uh, uh, part part of this episode. (laughs) But uh, you are right to say that, uh, yeah, yeah, we do talk about some of the big stories and the headlines, but we typically will take a different angle on them than the average consumer uh, would uh, expect from a photography podcast. And I think the audience has has learned that we kind of go down those rabbit holes once in a while and have some fun with it. Totally. before we get into uh, into the stories, uh, what have you been up to lately? What's been uh, what's been keeping you busy? Well, I mean, I moved down to southern Utah. I'm in the St. George area and have been, this is my first summer going through um, what I consider to be the most, the, the, the highest consecutive amount of triple digit days that I've ever lived through. So that's been an experience. I could imagine. I mean, everywhere it's getting hotter and hotter. Um, yeah. you know, I, I'm not sure if uh, the Arctic is still burning, but it had been for a while. It's uh, very cautious times. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not it's not something to trifle with. Um, and you know, granted, here in this particular part of the country, I guess this is somewhat uh, par for the course. But when you look at it you know, different parts where it's not, where, as you said, things are getting warmer. It is alarming. Uh, so on a more serious note, yeah, <laughs> yeah something well, to joke around about. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to, to get into political topics on this podcast. And I sure. know that a lot of people make climate change a political uh, hot button issue. It's not a political issue. It's a science issue. And we talk about science on this podcast all the time. So I'm happy to, uh, I don't want to dance around that one. The yeah. whole planet is getting warmer. It's why um, I just bought a new car and it uh, it's electric. So... Uh, yeah. ve- very happy about that, and we'll talk more on that uh, when some of the stories come up later in the uh, in the rundown. Right. But uh, you know, just do what you can, folks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person, multiplied across many people. That actually does have uh, an impact. Exactly, and it's not like I just went out and bought a a, a new car uh, or financed it rather because I uh, uh, I had a perfectly good one sitting at home. Oh no, it was uh, we retired a two thousand and seven Ford Fusion with just about four hundred thousand kilometers on it, and I did cry a little. Uh, lots of fond <laughs> memories uh, when I saw the tow truck take it away earlier today, um, but uh, onward and upward, right? Exactly. Yeah, and good for you for you know at least being. Granted, it's not, um, it's not, it's not exactly the most uh, cost-effective solution. Unfortunately, you know, going oh, electric. Oh yeah. But, uh, well, and in Ontario here, our electricity costs are higher than pretty well, pretty well everywhere else in North America. Uh, yeah. But partly because it's all, uh, or 90% is zero emission, uh, if I include into that number the, uh, the nuclear, because we've got some of the biggest nuclear uh, power generation plants in the world here in Ontario. Um, 
But anyhow, let's talk about photography stuff, shall we? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> let's get into the let's get into the stories. Uh, the first one is kind of a, a two-parter, um, a story from Petapixel that reads: Nikon CEO expects imaging business profits to grow eighty percent in three years, and its partner story from F-stoppers. Canon might be in trouble, and it's not just the nosedive in sales. Kind of conflicting moods here within these two stories. But let's start with Nikon. Um, and I'll just read uh, from the beginning of the article here. Uh, in a recent interview with the Japanese publication uh, Nikkei. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's how it's pronounced. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Nikon CEO uh, Toshikazu Umatate uh, admitted that the imaging profits had fallen to one-sixth of their peak in 2012, but painted a more hopeful picture for the future. You know, 2012 was not that long ago. And right. to think how far things have stumbled in just you know six or seven years, uh, depending on where you uh, draw the, uh, the the goalposts between those two dates, um, one sixth. That is scary. I mean, for us as photographers that want the latest gadgets, sure. But I mean, even support from the manufacturers, it's almost unsustainable at that point. Um, I'll, I'll read the quote, uh, the, the full statement. And then uh, immediately after I finish that, Brian, I want your opinions here. So uh, the market slowed down sharply. Our unit sales decreased to less than one sixth uh, in comparison to fiscal 2012, uh, which is the recent uh, peak year. There may be more downside risk ahead. Profits of the imaging products business, uh, including digital cameras, will fall to 12 billion yen this fiscal year. If anybody's not familiar with what 12 billion uh, yen is, it's around $114 million US. Now, keep in mind that's uh, uh, that's profit. That's not revenue. So they are still in the black here. And, and I'll get back to it. Uh, uh, where was I here? Yes, uh, 12 billion yen uh, this fiscal year because of the expansion of mirrorless products increases costs in advance. However, we hope the profit will in increase to 20 billion yen three years later. We are reviewing our sales network uh, of digital cameras. Online sales are increasing in North America, uh, while brick and mortar stores are still strong in Asia. I was surprised by that. Uh, we, uh, we are continuing to rebuild our sales structure to focus more on each region's strength. Structural reform since fall of 2016 lessened fixed costs, but there is still more room to cut costs by overhauling procurement costs. So, Brian, what say mm -hmm. you? Well, I mean, part of it's not surprising. Uh, in terms of, if you look specifically at Nikon and Canon, the the whole thing about they they've been so they've been kind of slow walking to the plate, as it was. You have the elephant in the room or the six hundred pound gorilla or whatever whatever you know, analogy one works. exactly um, is Sony, and Sony has been kind of going gangbusters. If you look at it from twenty twelve, which was their most recent peak year, or Nikon's most recent peak year. According to that statement, um, Sony's been. We'll just look at the at what they've uh, released uh, in terms of their mirrorless lineup. Uh, so, you know, you have a lot of people and you know, all these uh, photographers um, creating their own content, talking about why they made the switch to mirrorless. Um, and Sony's been very aggressive with that. So, when you couple that with, okay, finally, was it last year in twenty eighteen when um, Canon and Nikon released their full-frame interchangeable lens systems. You know, they had some interesting features and stuff, but I, I think, you know, granted I haven't used them, but I think their response was somewhat lukewarm. Um, yeah, well, I, and I think it's true of any new system. I believe yeah. Sony encountered that when they first started uh, into the digital SLR market because they were a new player and they had to be very aggressive in terms of their price and features in order to get people to even look at them. Um, and that strategy has worked. Yeah, you're 100% right. And even speaking, not even on their, their uh, SLR entry, but into their, their mirrorless, the full-frame mirrorless system where they're f the first A7 and A7R, I mean... Aside, if you remove just the, the innovation of having that full frame mirrorless system, the actual com cameras themselves were were horrors to use. In some cases, they were you know loud and they were uh, faulty and buggy. And to this day, still Sony's menu system is horrible compared to some others. Oh, it's uh, it's second from the bottom. I only put Olympus lower than Sony. Okay, yeah. So uh, it, there's there's a hope there, I guess, if Sony is listening. But um, yeah, you know. 
the, uh, when you come out with a new system, plus these systems have different lens mounts, and of course they have adapters for them, so you know you can still use your legacy, uh, your your existing lenses. But you know people are just looking; they're looking for what they they want, kind of the next thing, you know. And and if Nikon came out with you know some what was it the Z six and the Z seven, if I remember correctly, that's correct. If they were just groundbreaking. I think this would this story would read very differently, but because it was so lukewarm, uh, it is good to see. Though I'm I'm happy to see that there is some kind of bullish uh, opinion in terms of uh, you, you know he did say uh, where was it here um, the digital cameras uh, profit of the imaging products business, including digital cameras, will fall to 12 billion yen this fiscal year because the expansion of mirrorless products increases costs in advance, which makes sense. Um, they're kind of taking. Right now, there's this upfront hit, um, maybe with R&D, maybe with you know changing up assembly lines and production lines uh, for these new cameras, plus building out the next versions, bringing, building out more lenses, which arguably is, that's the most important thing in my opinion. The cameras are one thing, but um, people want to see lenses, like you know different types of lenses. If you just come to market with another 16 to 35 and a 2470 and a 7200, you know, F2.8, Okay. But Even if, if they don't sell, right? And, and there's a strategy to this. I remember uh, when I was studying advertising in college, mm-hmm. uh, there was a case study that we looked at for Wendy's hamburgers. And I've mentioned this on the podcast uh, at one point before, where they had a single, a double, and a triple patty burger. They realized the sales of the triple patty burger were very, very low, uh, and so they cut that out of their menu. When they mm-hmm. did, the sale of the double patty burgers dropped significantly and people were buying just the single patty burgers. It's a psychological trick. You have to have that flagship product or you have to have the choice of, yeah, get an extreme macro lens, a fisheye lens, tilt shift lenses, all of these weird pieces of equipment on the list for people to feel confident in the platform. Even if they're not going to buy that, they'll at least buy into the system to some level. That's a great point. I couldn't agree more. And part of it also could be kind of a Goldilocks effect in terms of by having, okay, using the Wendy's analogy, by having your single patty and your triple patty, you know, you have your two extremes, but then there's something comforting about having that one, you know, double patty in the middle by having all these different types of offerings within the lineup, both the camera and the lens lineup. I feel like you give um, customers a little bit of, like you said, confidence, like, okay, you know, um, this is not going to be turned into some vaporware type of thing where, you know, the, the Z7 is the, is one and done and then Nikon abandons it. Right. Well, I mean, Nikon abandoned their one series cameras too, and that's in recent history. So that's true. Uh, they, they've got to kind of claw back from that one a little bit. That's uh, a good whereas point. You've got other uh, competitors uh, like uh, Sigma, Panasonic, and Leica forming together in an alliance where the lenses, that kind of initial footprint of gear and accessories that you can buy for the platform is greater than what Canon and Nikon would have natively, uh, at least within the next 12-month period or so. Yep, absolutely. And so the competition is fierce. But you also have to remember, too, that if you buy a Nikon camera, uh, Sony makes money. Sony makes the sensor, at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember uh, the folks at uh, gigamacro.com. They uh, they make some very specialized equipment to do gigapixel macro photography with focus stacking, uh, mostly for institutions and things like that. But they took apart, I believe it was a Canon Rebel T2i uh, a few years ago. And the LCD screen on a Canon camera is made by Sony, even if Canon makes their own sensors. So Sony is really uh, entrenched in the industry. Even if you're not buying a Sony camera, you're probably still supporting the Sony corporation in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, I think I could be wrong, but isn't the case, at least with some of, for example, the Apple iPhones, I believe Samsung made the panels, like the displays. Um and yeah, again, there's I, no single manufacturer that makes everything. Uh, right. And, and so, so you, you look to the the, um, uh, the uh, fabrication facilities for all the processors in here. Those aren't owned by, by Canon or Nikon or any of the camera manufacturers, to my knowledge. Right. Uh, S- Samsung being the exception, of course, they're not in the uh, independent camera device market anymore. Right. No, they, they bowed out. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the, the, the second story uh, to kind of uh, touch on this as well is that Canon might be in trouble 
And it's not just the nosedives, uh, nosedive in sales from Andy Day on F-stoppers. And, you know, it, he makes some great comparisons about how far you could really push a traditional flapping mirror uh, digital SLR and uh, make specific references to the flagship, the still current flagship, the Canon 1DX Mark II, which I bought at release and sold a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, Really? And uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm uh, I've I've got access to um, uh, all sorts of gear from Panasonic because they're they're a sponsor of mine now. Right. Uh, I still kept it for a long time because you never knew when it might be needed for something. And then I realized I'd never really picked it up anymore, and it was just collecting dust and losing its value. So, sure. um, so yeah, Canon is in the catch up game too because Sony has at least dipped their toe in the water with their A9 at that high end market. And it's, I, I don't think that it was ever really designed to, to be a, uh, a profit center for Sony. It was more of a testbed of technology, get that platform primed, because before long, Canon and Nikon are going to be playing in that full-frame mirrorless market alongside, and, uh, you know, Sony has a head start already when they come up with whatever the successor to that camera is. It's going to be compared directly to whatever Canon has as its high-end offering, and if they can't take the crown from Sony then they don't get the people making the transition from the old mounts into the mirrorless market. Because they'll just go, at least on the pro side, to whatever the best body is. The brand loyalty doesn't really matter anymore at that point. And that's scary for the old guard camera companies, Canon and Nikon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I again, the thing is, what what bothers me, I guess it bothers is, is a word to use, but just... The, I don't want to. I don't want to assume that there was complacency, but every time Sony would release a new product, that right there is another data point in terms of um, all right. How can how can Canon or Nikon use that and iterate off of it, or you know, uh, innovate on top of it? Right. And I, I, it's reactionary. It's react exactly, exactly, yeah. And and when I see. Um, no, uh, People, you know, history is, is a wonderful teacher. And if it were me, for example, let's say I was a still a Nikon user, or I never was, but let's say I was a Canon user. Knowing, seeing what Sony, as you, you know, to, to borrow the phrase you just said in, in recent history, what they went through with the A7 line, where really you didn't want to even touch the A7 until Mark II, um, at the earliest, in my opinion. You know, and I've had, owned all of them. You know, I've got the A7R Mark IV on pre-order, like, knowing that i would i would definitely not even think about investing in either of those newer systems but that means i have to wait even longer um and that's assuming that canon and icon are going to continue to invest in that in those new systems and then it just kind of breeds a little bit of frustration that like why is it taking canon so long or nikon so long to to move forward um of course these are all um very pedestrian you know reactionary uh, thoughts, um, it, you know, R and D is just one of those things that takes a long time. It does, uh, and it's helpful to know too. At least I've got the Nikon numbers uh, in in front of me. That uh, you know they've made uh, almost 114 million dollars US in profit for their uh, their previous fiscal year, and uh, that means I mean they're they're not running a deficit here. They can put a hundred million dollars into research and development, and uh, yeah, their profits will be almost non-existent at that point. But then they would have the ability to push ahead and make sure that they are competitive in the marketplace moving forward. Mm-hmm. However, uh, and the big however here is a lot of that research and development outside of lenses. We're talking camera bodies. Right, um, is directly tied to Sony. Uh, their competition, because that's their sensor provider. So, uh, you know, even if they double down, they're they're going to be helping their competition in some way, uh, which is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario. But like you mentioned off the top, getting a good lens lineup out early, Mm -hmm. uh, put your R&D money in there. And then the people will follow, especially if you can create some niche products that they're going to be loss leaders. They're not going to sell well at a profit. But on a spec sheet, in terms of filling out the system, it's going to instill confidence in people. And I think that that's the one thing the Canon and Nikon systems right now are lacking is confidence. Yep. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. And, and uh, your points are totally sound. You know, put, show me that you've got some good lenses, the camera, you know, um, <laughs> 
I'm trying to think if the if the analogy plays with like printers, for example. Like, no, nah, not really, because you know, you lose money selling the printer to somebody, but you make it all back when they need to buy ink and exactly. print heads and everything yep. else. Oh, trust exactly. me, <laughs> I know. Yep. Uh, I did yes, an art show yes, yes. Uh, recently, and I was printing off uh, a ton on my Canon Image Prograph 8400, which is a 44 inch large format art printer. And I, I love it. And I, I love, I was playing around with a, a new paper as well, the Hanamule uh, Photo Rag Metallic, which just I, I absolutely loved. And I b- bought more rolls of. Uh, mm. But I noticed the little uh, uh, exclamation mark above the, the ink tank saying, hey, you're running out of ink. And then it showed up on like five or six ink tanks. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be into this for well over $1,000 just to replace a fraction of the ink in this printer. Mm. Um, and uh, I know Canon sold me that printer at uh at a loss they've yep. made it back handsomely since then yeah i mean the printer is otherwise just a big paperweight without the ink and so they exactly oh and the, the print heads are replaceable and they need to be replaced at some point and don't forget about the maintenance cartridge either uh they get you they get you oh, good sure. uh they know the business but uh let's uh, let's carry on uh sure. to the second story uh and we're, we're going to keep our finger on the pulse of the mirrorless market uh, as we have in, in most episodes in the past when new news comes out you'll hear about it here uh and you can always check that out at photogeekweekly.com uh, let's go into uh, story number two, Petapixel, uh, Xiaomi, and Samsung tease upcoming smartphone with 108 megapixel image sensor. Brian, Brian, <laughs> I've always wanted a 100 megapixel, no, I haven't. I haven't, I haven't wanted a 100 megapixel camera as my main shooting camera, and I don't want a 100 megapixel camera in my phone either. Um, yes. I'm assuming you read through this article. There's actually two announcements here. There's um, a, a uh, 64 megapixel. Um, uh, the GW1 uh, will use Tetracell technology to shoot 16 megapixel images in low light. Uh, and it has a remosaic algorithm that can uh, spit out the full resolution 64 megapixel images. And I'm going to circle back to that in a little bit. Um, and that was kind of overshadowed by the uh, announcement at the same time of a 100 megapixel variant. Um, I don't even know how to lead this into you. What, what do you think they're thinking that us as consumers want here? Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, it, if I had to guess, it, this is a purely a, <laughs> the marketing people are just kind of salivating at this. Whereas, uh, you know, an engineer is looking and probably just kind of shaking their head. This is, this is similar to when I worked at Wacom and we went uh, from one, from an Intuos tablet that had uh, 4,000, a little, just over 4,000 levels of pressure sensitivity to the Intuos Pro, which had just over 8,000. So doubling that. And I remember speaking with one of the, the, the doctors there, one of the engineers who I highly respect. And I, and I just like, help me understand this. Like, is there like, at what level can a human perceive the difference between 4,000 and 8,000, much less 2,000 or 1,000 levels of pressure sensitivity? Um, and he just looked at me and basically said, this is a marketing thing. Like, yes, it does have 8,000 levels of pressure sensitivity, however it's measured, but it's a marketing thing. Um, TVs believe- do the same thing. You go into uh, any electronic store uh, that is selling a television and they'll have the little sticker on the side saying, oh, this one does 12 million uh, uh, colors. Oh, but this one, you pay more, it does 16. Yeah. Well, the human eye, I, I don't know, it can see like around 4 or 8 million colors at maximum. Um, and that's really pushing it unless you're one of the weird people that have an extra set of cones in your eyes. Um, or one of the ones who have a, a fewer like me. And are or, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Blind. Uh, so, I mean, at that point, it's just pure marketing. And yes. Uh, yes, to be fair, there is 108 million uh, photo sites, let's call them, on sure. the sensor. Because that is the proper term for this, because a photo site is a light collector that is not yet a pixel. And so what they're effectively doing uh, with this quad bear array is instead of having an array of red, green, red, green, red, green, uh, 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 green, blue, green, blue, green, blue, whatever the bear pattern is, I might have gotten it backwards there, but mm-hmm. you know, you know what I'm saying. I know exactly um, what you're saying. For every green, red, and blue, you have four within that square. 
So instead of having one green photo site, you actually have four green photo sites and so on and so forth. Now, this could, I guess, be used in some ways to, uh, to smooth out noise. Uh, if they're making them uh, this small, then they might be a little bit noisier than larger sensors, and thereby you can create a higher quality image by then combining uh, those four pixels and then demosaicing the image into whatever you would be creating at the end. Uh, um, a 100 megapixel camera goes down to 27 megapixels or so, uh, which is more than most smartphones at this current time. Um, uh, well, and it's still probably even overkill for what I would say at that point. What, yeah. what gets me, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if this is just pure marketing or if there is some engineering know-how in here, but it seems like they're just sprinkling pixie dust in front of us and saying, thanks to a re-mosaic algorithm, you can get your full 100 or 64 megapixel image as a result from this. But, but no, you can't. Right. It's just, it, it doesn't work that way. There, there might be some um, interpolation of data where knowing that uh, a green photo site closer to a blue photo site might behave better than a green photo site closer to a red photo site. Um, and there might be some math that could improve that. But by no means is it going to give you a 108 megapixel image. It, 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 and even if it could, this is where... The, the first question, anyone who's listening who has any interest in this, in my opinion, the very first question that you should ask once someone says, yeah, but this has 108 megapixels, for me is, okay, well, what's, what's the size of the sensor? What are we talking about here? And there's a little blurb speaking about the 64 megapixel sensor. It says, it already uses relatively small 0.8 micrometer pixel. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the, the pixels are 0.8 micrometers compared to 1.4 micrometers, so that's just a little less than double the size um, found in the iPhone XS and the Google Pixel 3 sensors. So, you know, th- there, there's this kind of point of diminishing returns that approaches, you approach it so rapidly when you start talking about these tiny little sensors. And uh, there's a reason, in my opinion, I mean, for how many generations has Apple, Apple kept their sensors at 12 megapixels? You know? Well, and uh, here's the thing, though, and, and I... I don't want to keep saying that same phrase, but uh, if you have 0.8 um, it compared to 1.4, if you got rid of your quad Bayer array, you'd be at 1.6. Your pixels would be yes. bigger. Your photo sites, rather, would be bigger on, uh, on the sensor itself, and you would still have a 27 megapixel image. Maybe my math is wrong, but it seems like that sensor has a larger area uh, and a higher resolution and a higher quality without going through this whole gimmicky thing. And nobody is going to be saving 108 megapixel smartphone images because it's going to eat up your storage on your device almost instantly. Exactly. And that's that's the other side of this, that it just kind of is one of those things like, just because we can, should we? Um, and are you telling me that this is the, the most pressing, uh, hot button thing that you should be focusing on when you're developing this, this mobile phone? Like, is this the thing really that's going to move the needle? Are there other, maybe, you know, can your device be, you know, can the display be better or can, you know, the durability be better or this or that, but you're just going for the, the, the sexy glitzy numbers of, you know, hundred megapixels, like. Oh my God, I thought we were done with this, Don. I really did. I thought we were over this. It reminds me of, I was watching, this was when I was in high school, I found a, uh, it's like a precursor to a TED Talk. Um, uh-huh. uh, it was one of the uh, Intel engineers. And he was talking about how Intel was being very innovative and how they had just, um, they were working, I think, on the Pentium 4 chips or whatever at the time. And it was going oh, back. that's a throwback. Their- yeah, when he was going back through the history, all the way back to the Pentium Pro, the P6 architecture, uh, and how revolutionary that was at the time, uh, and how some of the things that them and the competitors would add into products would be like almost meaningless unless was very specifically taken advantage of in in software, but for the most part was just a marketing play. Mm-hmm. He made a reference uh, to Tide, and Tide at one point in history came out with Tide with blue crystals. <laughs> and the blue crystals did nothing. They, the, like, they did absolutely nothing. 
but it ratcheted the sales up dramatically over the old traditional Tide and brought in people from the competition because now there's Tide with blue crystals. This is not a new technique. This is not a new marketing strategy. This is age old. Exactly. Unfortunately, you know, there are, I don't know if there are any byproducts with blue crystals and light detergent, but like the point you made just a minute ago, you know, if I have a, okay, if I buy a phone and the phone is able, is capable of taking a photo at 108 megapixels, assuming that, you know, because it says that it, ha- it has to have the adequate amount of light, which is a, a wonderful caveat right there. <laughs> yeah, the light of a thousand suns to <laughs> illuminate your subject. I don't even want to know what kind of lux you need to get, you know, to, for it to resolve at 108 megapixels. But the, the point you made that doesn't get discussed is, oh man, I just took, you know, four photos and I'm out of space. Like, womp, womp, like, what am I supposed to do now? Well, especially because when you have that much data, um, every one of those pixels has three data points to it, a red, a green, and a blue value, uh, which means that uh, a raw file at 108 megapixels would be roughly a third the size as a TIFF file. And we see that with our our regular cameras. And Mm -hmm. of course, a a JPEG would be smaller, uh, fitting into an 8-bit bucket uh, per pixel. But still, uh, the the resulting images are astounding. Astoundingly huge. Just look at anybody trying to save. Like when I have a um, a 187 megapixel uh, TIFF file from my um, uh, Lumix S1R. Well, the RAW file alone is over 300 uh, megabytes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the TIFF file is well, well into the gigabyte range, depending on what I'm doing and, and if I'm, uh, you know, uh, combining some stuff together there, like adding mm-hmm. a single layer or, or anything like that. It it, it gets uh, grotesquely huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not built for the smartphone market. Yeah, I know storage is getting cheaper and we can get like terabyte phones just about these days. Uh, but should you be filling that up with a couple of hundred photos? I I don't think that's the solution we're, we're looking for here. Spe- even, sorry, continue. Oh, I was, I was going to say, you haven't even uh, pivoted to, you know, we're, we're talking about local storage. We haven't even talked about uh, any you know, carrier uh, hits that you get where, you know, uploading and syncing. Uh, oh, yeah, that's another giant. huge problem there, too. And right. I, I s- simply wouldn't. Um, but keep in mind what people use their smartphones for, that the cameras in their phones. Um, they post on Facebook or integra- Instagram pr- mm-hmm. predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're even viewing the uh, the photo on that screen, you're going to be limited by the resolution of that screen. You're not going to infinitely zoom in on something, uh, right. maybe once or twice as a parlor trick, but people will get tired of that very, very quickly. Exactly. Um, so for a platform where people want better pixels, where they want computational photography, computational photography is another problem here. Because if you want to feed in a 108 megapixel file into an algorithm that's supposed to do face detection and background blurring and everything else, it ain't going to happen instantaneously. It's probably not going to happen at all. Oh, no, it'll, the phone will melt in your hand. You know, <laughs> exactly. It, it, I can only imagine what kind of a performance hit the phone will take for battery and processor like you said um again it's just kind of like this point of diminishing returns when you look at uh, you know kind of as far as uh, the 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 use case again i mean i don't i would love to know if there's a way to get a statistic of what percentage of uh, photos taken across all devices all devices um what where are they uh, destined for and i would wager that the the vast majority of them are you know to, to put in a loose bucket with social media so yeah yeah you throw something up on twitter whether yeah. it's 108 megapixels or 12 megapixels it doesn't matter what yeah. matters at that point uh, and that's why i'm i'm relatively happy with what uh, apple and samsung have done uh and and google too with their pixel phones uh they've kept the megapixels relatively low but every one of them is improving in quality from generation to the next mm-hmm. uh and that's partly due to slight improvements in optics and sensor technology. It's mm-hmm. really pushed forward in the last couple of years with computational photography. Uh, and th- this is incompatible with those improvements. So I think it's it will find a very, very small market, but there's a good chance that this technology 
is going to adapt. It's going to find a different market uh, beyond what they're trying to, you know, plan for in terms of cell phones, industrial sensors, uh, certain security cameras that need to have extremely high resolution for face detection of crowds, etc. You know, Canon's already working in that space with some of their very high megapixel uh, devices uh, or sensors that they license out to other people. I think this technology is destined for something similar and won't really survive in consumer hands. No, and and I what you said about computational photography, I think that is that's where, in my opinion, everyone should be focusing. You know, Apple does would probably focus on it more um, on device because they're all about kind of you know <laughs> they say they're more about privacy. Um, Google obviously makes no bones about uploading your photos and then running it through. And you know, when I when I worked at Google on, on the photos team, one of the privileges I had was I worked directly with Mark Lavoie, who is just a brilliant engineer. Um, and he was pushing computational photography at Google forward uh, by leaps and bounds. He was the one that was developing the HDR plus algorithm. And I remember sitting with him, we were doing, you know, AB tests, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos, just kind of going through like, is you know, um, the original photo versus the one that was run through the, comp- the, the algorithms for HDR. And, you know, it, that's where, I see innovation where you, you know, if you can take, imagine, you know, like we were just saying, you know, you take a 108 megapixel photo and you just start working on it on the device, you know, the it, it, it'll melt. But if you can take a photo and you upload it to the cloud um, and you can leverage cloud-based computing um, and then get the result back. Yeah, and that's a different story. But then you have to upload all that data to the cloud and receive it all back again, too. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, there's there's going to be a bottleneck somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, there's, listen, there's no, there, right now there's no, um, you know, perfect solution. You know, Apple's trying to do their thing, but you can see that that's, um, unfortunately, like when Apple released the, I think the, the 10s and the 10s max, they, one of the things that they were hit for was their, um, the onboard processing for kind of skin smoothing when they would, when you would use the portrait mode. It was right. Terrible. Well, because it was too obvious that it was being done, right? Right. But that was, so I if don't you make think it transparent, cloud-based. that it, wasn't cloud based. It wasn't cloud based, uh, and and with those kinds of edits, if you make them transparent, so that the end user doesn't see anything happening, it just looks better, like a yeah. better version of themselves that is believably themselves. Um, that's 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 the line you have to draw. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and that's a difficult thing to do when you're limited to the power of the device. And I, smartphones are getting more and more powerful all the time. Uh, look at what Qualcomm is putting out for the, the processors these days. It's just every new generation is twice as fast as the previous one. But that doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can go 10 times the number of megapixels and still be useful. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It, Moore's law does not apply necessarily as, as effectively to imaging technology. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see where this goes. I, I would love to get my hands on one of these cameras and just see how it operates in terms of responsiveness, uh, in terms of the quality of the end result, and that re-mosaicing algorithm nonsense. I tried to look it up. I couldn't find any documentation on it whatsoever, which is never mm-hmm. a good sign. Exactly. Uh, other than they've used it as a marketing term in their press releases. So uh, if, I, if I can't have a white paper that shows me exactly what they're doing with that algorithm, I don't believe it. Yeah, much less when you're actually planning on using it with your own imagery. Exactly, exactly. All right, next story. Uh, we like to talk about copyright now and again on this podcast. Um, so this one from Petapixel. Elon Musk is blocking people uh, who say photographers should be credited. Oh boy. Um, this is, it's not the first time anybody uh, with fame, fortune, or celebrity status um, has uh, used images without permission and has been taken to task about it. It's one of the stories we often talk about, whether you're an actor, a model, a musician. This happens on such a regular basis. Um, I'll read the intro to the story here. Uh, If you enjoy following Elon Musk on Twitter, be careful not to call him out on posting photographers' work without permission or credit. Multiple people just got blocked by the Tesla and SpaceX entrepreneur for doing just that. It all started yesterday when Musk tweeted a photo of a lightning strike to his 27 plus million followers with the uh, text, Ride the Lightning. The photo's gotten over 1,000 comments, 6,000 retweets, and 70,000 likes, and it's likely much higher than that now. I haven't uh, pulled up the statistics on it. Um, it turns out that the photo was uh, shot from the bus at the launch pad by photographer Richard Angle, uh, who has shot many launches over the course of his career. And I took a look, and he's got some great work. Um, 
And uh, so uh, there's links to his website and his Instagram on this post. Um, Musk didn't credit Angle at all for the photo, aside from the tiny watermark uh, that was left in the bottom corner of the image. Okay, Brian, how do you feel so, about copyright? Uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I've written an, an opine a lot, for instance, on like, you know, the existence of Unsplash, for example, which is to me a, a travesty. Uh, it, it, sh- it makes my spine tingle in a weird and uh, terrifying way. Yeah, and just a, you know, two-second thing of what I mean, Unsplash is basically a stock repository where photographers upload, or people, I should say, upload photos essentially kind of... Uh, for free, you give up all copyright. Uh, you, I can go there and download it and do whatever I want with it, um, you know, with a little asterisk on it. But um, to to kind of go, you know, I I just opened the the Xiaomi story we just talked about, and um, both are published on Petapixel on the same day, and the Xiaomi story had garnered twenty three comments. <laughs> and how many comments are on this story, Brian? Three hundred and two at the time of recording. Um, so it goes to show that, you know, copyright, especially when it has to do with, you know, the kind of the, the Tony Stark of, of real world. Um, these are things that I, I think resonate a lot more with, with photographers and they resonate with me as well. I, I really do enjoy the kind of the, the cover image uh, that, that Petapixel used um, where <laughs> someone was replying saying you should credit the photographer and an updated status of Elon Musk blocked you. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's that's not a defense for copyright infringement. And it's no. very clear that this is copyright infringement. Words from me, who is not a lawyer, and I don't think you are either, Brian. Nope. Um, but uh, so come to your own conclusions on this. But Elon Musk, uh, assuming that uh, the photographer uh, tweeted a short message about the exposure last night before going to bed. So Richard Angle said, well, this is cool. My watermark is still there, exclamation point. Um, so clearly... Musk used the image uh, without Richard's uh, expressed permission or any compensation or any license, and that would constitute copyright infringement so long as it doesn't qualify uh, under the four pillars of fair use. And I don't think this would hit any of them. No. Um, so, you know, and and you'd have to hit them all for it to qualify. Uh but, I mean, what do you do against the, the rich and powerful? Uh, do you just take it as a compliment? Do you contact a lawyer? What I would do immediately uh, would be contact a lawyer before responding or anything. Um, and I've got lawyers that I work with, uh, and I've got ongoing cases that I can't talk about that uh, if I had taken to social media right away, I would have gotten absolutely nothing as a result. Um, yeah. But if, if I go through those proper channels... Um, and there is an update at the bottom of this article saying that Musk has deleted the photo at the center of this controversy and has blocked Richard Angle on Twitter uh, in true form. So uh, that you, you can't really just run away from this. I mean, the evidence is everywhere, and I'm sure a lawyer would love to pick up this case even on contingency and, uh, and make, uh, I don't know, an example of it. Yeah, I mean, well, so the thing, the first thing, that um and you 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 already kind of made the point um these cases that you have for example uh the the problem or where things fall apart where i see with just about 10 out of 10 photographers because let's call a spade a spade i know very few photographers that copyright their work they just well you take, copyright your work the the second that you take the picture but register the copyright registering, is what you mean, right? uh, well, thank you yeah you're 100% right registering it like cuz um without registering it you're not entitled to punitive damages um you know you're or you're, statutory damages for that matter you're only or, entitled to actual damages which is you know pennies to the dollar um when yeah. you have someone like for example Elon Musk sharing your work um and so that that's my first thing where it's like all right i know that people want to take photos and they want to share their photos as quickly as possible. But if, um, if, you know, if I'm to be kind of, I don't know if it's sounding callous, but if it's something that you're concerned about, you know, then maybe you should make sure that you you register your photos first before you publish them online. If you have an iconic image, Brian, that you mm-hmm. know is just going to get the love of the world when you post it online, that love is still going to be there a day later. 
right? Yeah. And so if you take the time to register the copyright of that image, and it's not free to do so, although if you've got that iconic image and you want to, that is your kick in the butt to register, you can register other images at the same time. You don't have to just put that one up there. Right. and there's some great videos out there. Uh, another uh, common guest host on this podcast, Steve Brazel, uh, did a great uh, video walkthrough of how you can register your images with the U.S. Copyright Office. It's not a complicated process. Uh, here in Canada, you can register with the Canadian Intellectual Property Office. It's a different process, but still, that registration has meaning. And if I didn't do that to some of my most iconic work, my lawyers wouldn't be interesting in, uh, interested in defending it at all. There you go. And at the end of the day, it's a it's your business. It it's a business. I mean, this is your business. Um, you know, you think Apple kind of is haphazard with you know registering patents or trademarks on on things. You know, if even it doesn't matter. Just it, even if it never sees the light of day, you know, Apple is going to make sure that they protect their intellectual property. And so I, I believe that you know photographers have the same responsibility for, you know, if they value it in that capacity, if it's simply just, hey, I'm just a person I caught this really cool, and it is a cool photo. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and and everybody, check out the article uh, to, to see it. I mean, uh, or seriously, go check out uh, Richard Angle's website, his Instagram account. Uh, clearly, he's on Twitter as well. And uh, and follow him. I mean, he deserves uh, at least, <laughs> I hate to say it, he deserves exposure because I mean, nobody should get paid in exposure. But uh, at least at this point, uh, he is somebody that I'm following. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got really great work. And and I think it, it was cool um, in terms of just kind of, I don't know, the, 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 whole, the way everything played out, none of it really uh, surprises me. It's kind of like you've seen this before. You're going to see it again. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Gigi Hadid, is that how I pronounce her name? The, uh, the oh, model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that story uh, we had talked about on this podcast in the past, um, where she was claiming that uh, she contributed to the creation of the image by smiling at the photographer, and thereby her artistic uh, contributions uh, entitle her to use the image, which is just bogus beyond bogus. Yeah. Um, but the case was thrown out. Because the image wasn't registered before the copyright case was presented, and uh, it's in black and white in the law, if you're going to take a case to court, you have to register the copyright. Even if the infringement happened before your registration, you still have to go that extra mile and register it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's... The, man, That's a, it's like an entirely... You can have an entire a topic or a show entirely on this subject, but this compulsion to share um for what reason you know when every i mean it's not the most uh streamlined or or user-friendly process to register your copyrights and yes like you said it does cost money but at the same time why not just kind of and i love that that, what was the phrase you said like they'll love your photo tomorrow yeah Um, i mean you don't need to have it posted with immediacy exactly i mean you just never know. And, and I would say that a good barometer or a good litmus test is the more excited you are about sharing the photo, probably the, the more time you should take to maybe register it first. Because if it really excites you, odds are it'll excite other people. Uh, maybe. Yeah. And you know what? If The average photographer is not going to have an image that goes to that level of excitement every day or every week. Um, maybe if you have a, uh, you know, an, an image worth your attention to this degree once every couple of months, I, I think that's about what it is for me, um, then that would be the impetus. And I should do it more often. I should do it at exactly that moment is go and open up a copyright registration form and just start registering the heck out of everything that I had photographed in the year uh, up to that point that I can mm-hmm. fit on that form, which I think is 750 images at a time, which I don't... You don't need to upload full resolution or anything like no, that. No, no, no. You just have to... You know, you've got to fill out a spreadsheet with the file mm-hmm. name and uh, and some other basic information, like when the photo was taken, uh, and then upload the images alongside. Yep. Yep. Simple. We, sh- we should all do it more often instead of just talking about it. Agreed. Um, all right. Let's talk about images that may or may not be in the public domain because they are government photos during the wartime era. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, this is from Petapixel. Uh, photo flash bombs were once used to light nighttime aerial photos. So imagine yourself in the early 1940s. 
um, the Allies against the Nazis. And you are in a, uh, a bomber or a reconnaissance aircraft, and you need to get imagery of the, uh, of the enemy's movement. Well, you're going to be doing your reconnaissance missions at night, and there's no film capable of illuminating the darkness below you. So what do you do? You drop bombs loaded with flash powder that are specifically designed to trigger in midair to act as a flash for the scene. I, okay, I, I'm not surprised at this, but to just see the diagrams and to see mm-hmm. the, the people loading this in and to see the images that resulted, it's phenomenal that we got this figured out as a matter of life and death back, uh, back in World War II. Yeah, and in, in 2019, we're talking about 108 megapixel. You know, <laughs> it it really is uh, just a wonder. I mean, we're science and the advancement of, of imaging technology. It's just one of those. Uh, uh, it's it's a privilege to talk and be able to talk about it on the show. Um, when you see, and really, everyone should go to this article and see the the diagrams and the resulting photos. It's it's just amazing. These Compared efforts, to- by the way, just to go back to the fact mm-hmm. that we're in this modern era of a free society capable of making a career out of art. It's because of these inventions and executions of that same technology back in a time where people were fighting for their lives and fighting for the freedoms that we have now. And I just want to mention that, that I'm very yeah. respectful for it. Absolutely. It's humbling in every single way, you know, not saying it with any sort of platitude. It's, it's just... You, you, you said it, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, we get to do this. You know, we, the, the technologies that we get to use that we take for granted, um, when you look at the, the impetus of it, what it was originally used for, developed for like <laughs> detonating the, literally these giant bombs of light. And um, it, it's fun to see some of the images because you can tell that they would just leave the shutter open for a long period of time, right. wait for the, the bomb to explode and illuminate the scene, and then close the shutter or uh, just move on to the next frame, whatever it happened to be. Because you'll see these very long streaks, which are clearly uh, based on the movement of the plane over the mm-hmm. landscape. Uh, and there's some slight wiggles within that based on whatever turbulence the aircraft might have had, although it's pretty stable flying. Yeah. Um, and uh, then once the, the bomb goes on, uh, you'll see it illuminating all of the uh, uh, streets and uh, waterways. If there's a ship in a harbor, you can identify that, and you know your uh, sort of your enemy's movements as a result. But some of my favorite images uh, are right at the very end, where you've got this like weird, crazy, like something funky happened with the film uh, lines running all across the frame. And the caption for this image, and I really want people to go and check this out, uh, is a photo captured during a night raid in Berlin, Germany in 1941. The ground is illuminated by a flash bomb, while light streaks in the frame were created by searchlights pointed up at the plane. Mm-hmm. So it's like light painting at war. I just, <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> it's, it's very, very har- harrowing. And, you know, when you think about that. But the fact that we can sit here and appreciate kind of the artistic result. Well, it's the narrative that it comes yes. out. Because in that moment, I can imagine all of those uh, spotlights running over the plane and the pilots and the fear that they have. Because if there's a light on them, then there's a gun on them. Yep. Uh, and you get to kind of feel that just by looking at that frame. And it's very powerful. It's, it's very and, humbling. And you see this. You can see the, those little circle, those spotlights towards the bottom of the frame. Like You, you see them there on the ground. Um, um, yeah, well, that, who knows? They might not be spotlights. That might be like uh, the, the illumination of a missile or something being oh, launched yeah. up at the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 just, it's phenomenal. Like, I'm so glad that you, you chose this story because I remember when it came, you know, when it was published a couple of days ago. Um, it's just such a cool, these are, I wish we, we kind of would see more of these kinds of stories. Um, I, and uh, we, we have talked about a few of them on Photo Geek Weekly before. There was a, a Japanese gun camera that I really enjoyed. There was one that was up for sale on eBay uh, where it was loaded into their aircraft for uh, air-to-air assaults. And instead of firing bullets, it shot frames of film. And if the, uh, the opposing training aircraft was in the reticle on the frame of film, you would have gotten the shot. And it was mm-hmm. a really clever way to use photography uh, to, to train the, uh, the aerial gunners. Uh, I I don't know if one of these 
would uh, end up at auction on eBay. I think the explosive element in there would kind of prohibit <laughs> that. Um, but hey, if I could get one of these things empty and just hang that up in my studio, I most certainly would. Oh, absolutely. I agree yeah. 100%. It just it look even the diagrams they just look they look really cool and I mean it's it's nice for a change to see kind of ordnance like that these giant missile canisters not necessarily used to blow things up well I guess to blow up light you know to yeah, it, it's designed to illuminate things, not to uh, to be destructive uh, yeah. in, in a sense. And so, um, thank you for the uh, the inventors of the era that were able to come up with these designs and uh, and put them to good use. Uh, to I, I don't know if something like that that whatever intel that they gathered, it invariably would have saved lives rather than ended them. So it's yes. the exact opposite of what a bomb would have normally intended to have, have done. So kudos to uh, to all of those wonderful people that. I salute uh, more than once a year. I mean, November 11th is Remembrance Day here. Um, it's Veterans Day in the U.S. And mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, every day I go out and uh, uh, every year to the local cenotaph and I celebrate those people that not just then uh, in that war, but of all time. And to see that work now, especially this stuff was probably fairly classified at the time. Uh, and we're just seeing about this stuff now and all of these heroes that just had to lie silent for their entire lives. Uh, we can now celebrate. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, that, uh, that winds down the stories, Brian. Before we get to the picks of the week, um, let's, uh, let's mention where people can find you online if they just can't get enough Brian Matias. Oh, uh, so... Um, probably the best way right now is I've been working on a, I've been moving slowly all of my, I guess, content. I don't know, word is, I don't know, that word kind of gives me tingles. I don't like it anymore, but I'm moving <laughs> over to a new platform called Kajabi. And so uh, the the URL there is just is learn.matias.com. So L-E-A-R-N dot M-A-T-I-A-S-H dot com. And so that's where I'm kind of focusing my energies these days is kind of building that out. It's um, it's, it's slow going, but it's, I'm really enjoying it. Um, so that's where people can find me, Don. Awesome. Well, we'll have a link there in the show notes, as well as all of your social media places so that people can follow your antics. I know you get good. up to antics once in a while. I try uh, to. <laughs> uh, always good to keep life interesting. Sure. So let's get into the picks. Um, Brian, I'll start with mine. Uh, I don't know what yours is yet, so I'm kind of left in the dark here. I'm very curious, but we'll save that to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is uh, a partner pick to something that I had picked a couple of weeks ago, uh, which was the Platypod Ultra, which is a fun little, basically a metal plate with proper tripod screw holes and accessories and stuff so that you could get a stable platform, very, very low. I was using it on uh, my ultraviolet flashes to get the proper angle because the top heavy flash flashes wouldn't topple over when I was using it. And uh, I uh, got in touch with the, uh, the, the owners uh, of uh, Platypod, and they, uh, they sent me a Platypod Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, they sent me a couple of them because they really liked the work that I was doing uh, with some of their hardware. And this thing is really cool, kind of like, um, like a mobile base of operations on your tripod, especially as a macro photographer, when I love to have all sorts of gadgets and doodads right next to the camera. Uh, I can screw them right into this base plate, flexible arms, uh, you know, clamps that will uh, hold flashlights. Everything can be all kind of attached to one main platform, especially if I'm doing some in-the-field stuff. Um, and it's rock-solid stable if you were to be trying to use something like that as a tripod as well. It comes with these little little screw and legs uh, to lift it onto any angle that you want. All very low to the ground stuff or for tabletop stuff like I've been using it for. Um, it's been great. You can also attach it to a uh, tripod. Just I would take the uh, ball head off of my tripod and put this on instead and mount everything to uh, to this thing. And it just gives me all of those extra little screw in points, kind of like a, a cage for videographers mm-hmm. where, you know, they need to have all of these accoutrements around the camera in order to get the job done. Um, this I would consider to be kind of like a cage for stills photographers, uh, as well as being its own independent thing. But I can just use it to stick everything together uh and uh, i've enjoyed using them so the platypod max is my pick of the week excellent yeah i've I've got a platypod it's an older one i got it years ago um and sometimes i forget that i have it but when i when i do bring it with me i always enjoy having it because like you said it kind of does give you that versatility um and it's completely flat. Like, it, it, exactly. it, it slips in the laptop pouch of my camera bag that I never put a laptop in anyhow. So it's, uh, it's very easy to take around with me when, uh, when I'm out in the field or when I'm in studio. It's just, it's always there. Yep. Yep. Uh, what, 
Thank you. Uh, what is your pick? I'm so curious. So my pick, I actually just got it delivered um, maybe a week ago. And it, this has been something that has, it was a, you know, a Kickstarter project. Uh, and finally, uh, it, it, has, it had been shipping to backers, but it's the Narbox 2.0. And what um, is this? So the Narbox is just a, it's a, it's a silent G. So it's G-N-A-R-B-O-X. And this, so I am, I don't know if it's, you know, what the feasibility or the, the how realistic is, but I, I'm very bullish on mobile photography. And I'm not necessarily talking about taking photos with your camera. I'm talking about migrating um, the, the kind of uh, the import, the, 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 the culling, the editing, everything to mobile, like with an iPad Pro. And so this is a device, this Narbox 2, is, it's an SSD drive. In, in my case, I've got a one ter- it's a one terabyte flavor. And it ha- it's, it's very rugged. Um, it's you know, waterproof, dustproof, shockproof. And it, it has a little uh, SD card slot and a USB 3, uh, or I'm sorry, USB-C slot. Um, and essentially, at the very least, if you want, you, all I can do if I'm in the field shooting, say, for a week or two, I can just pop in an SD card and it can do incremental backups. Um, but then it can go a step further where um, I can connect it uh, USB-C to USB-C over Ethernet um, to my iPad Pro and actually you know, import those original RAW files onto my iPad uh, into Lightroom Mobile, which I, that is what I use. I use Lightroom CC, not Classic, or I, I'm, I'm pretty vested into, into that. And so I can just get all of you know, my, my photos on my iPad those can get, if I have internet access, those can get backed up to Adobe Creative Cloud, which is what I use. Um, and it's just, um, it's just, it's it has a little, uh, a little tiny LCD. Uh, and one of the things that I really enjoy about it is that it has what's called these kind of import presets. So, based on the camera, because you know whether it's a, one, my Sony A7 III or my R3 um, or my DJI Mavic 2 Pro or my Osmo Pocket, um, I can create a an import preset based on the device and it'll instead of just dumping everything into these nameless folders it'll actually put them into specific folder names and you know it'll rename the files if i want accordingly so it's just for 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 data management that sounds really, really useful yeah yeah and it has you know a wi-fi uh radio built in so if you don't want to you don't have to connect it directly say to an ipad you can pair it uh, over an ad hoc wi-fi network to your iphone or your android phone and um, the app that they use is built with uh, technology from Photo Mechanic, which is lightning one of fast, lightning fast for for culling. So um, it, it's been a pleasure. You know, I've been I've been using. It. They've just started sending it to backers. I got it about a week and a half before that, and so I've been communicating with their, and they sent it to me. So to, in full disclosure, I did not buy this. This was provided to me. So um, I don't want to mislead, but. I, I love it. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful You, you would pay for it if you had to kind of thing, you know, right? Oh, this is actually, I mean, I'm going to be, um, I've, I've just opened up registration for a workshop for the winter of next year for, of 2020. And because of the way that the workshop is priced, I'm including A&R box for all, for each attendee, because I, that's how much I believe in it. Like, and that's something I'm paying for. Um, you know, it's not just something I'm being provided with. And, and how it's much like, do they cost if you were to go out and want one of them for yourself? They range. Um, the the one terabyte I think is like eight hundred dollars. I, I I'm, give me one second. Um, there's a two fifty six, a five twelve, and a one terabyte. So the two fifty six is four ninety nine US, five twelve is five ninety nine US, and one terabyte is eight ninety nine US. So it kind of jumps up a little bit more. But um, it's just I love just if I wanted to go out, you know, especially where I live here in. Um, the Southwest, if I want to take a few days and just kind of go out of pocket and definitely not want to bring a laptop, uh, even I, can, I don't have to bring anything, just, I can just bring my phone, but I'll still have this, this device. I can import my photos and my videos as I take them, and I can just pair to it and call as I need. And one copy does not a backup make, right? You need Indeed. to have backups of your work in the field, especially because that's where you're most likely to lose it. Indeed. I mean, you know, I do, um, my cameras, uh, my actual cameras have multiple, you know, two um, uh, SD card slots, and I, I have it set to mirror, so I have one backup. But like you said, 
Just that is not enough. Well, if somebody steals your camera, then what good is having two memory cards in it that go with it? Goodbye. I mean, I'm, and I'm kind of <laughs> neurotic about that. So having this, especially again, if they have some really nice kind of like marketing photos and they're all, you know, the, the device is covered in, in rain and stuff like that. So um, it's just, this is one of those things where I'm, I'm glad to see it come out finally um, because it's been a long time coming. Um, this has been in development for several years now. So. Well, and I know exactly how, like, I've backed a lot of Kickstarter campaigns. I just had one of my own yes, that was very did. successful. And I am just, I'm bashing my head against the wall to, to meet my deadlines, just because doing page layouts is mind-numbingly boring sometimes. Yeah. Um, and the writing, I don't mind. And most of it's already been done well before the campaign started, as are the images. But I just got my last lens in the mail today that I'm going to be shooting comparison images for. So I was held up on that, uh, which might be a pick uh, in the future if I if I like it. It's the sure. new uh, Venus Optics uh, Liowa 100mm uh, 2x macro lens, which oh. um, holds a lot of promise for me on paper. So let's see how it performs. Yeah, I like what Venus has been doing, um, and I'm a you know I'm a proud backer of the project, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to have to check this uh, Narbox out because it it seems like it's something that. I would recommend people do. I, I don't like to recommend stuff unless I've had my own hands-on experience uh, with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, just, I mean, I'm going traveling uh, to, to, we go to uh, Bulgaria every year uh, to visit my wife's family. Uh, I've done trips into the Yukon wilderness where I'm less likely to be robbed, but hey, there's still bears and things. Sure. Um, and, and electronics will fail uh, invariably at some point. So to have a backup and to just be able to transfer things easily onto a mobile platform. Now, I don't really need to have it uh, on a phone or an iPad. I'm more of a Windows user here and I've got a Surface Pro 3. And so I've kind of got that covered, um, but I'd still need a card reader or something. And this doubles as that. So yes, it does. yeah, exactly. Perfect. Well, Brian, thank you very much for that pick. I'll make sure that I get a link to it in the show notes where people can take a closer look, as with all of the stories that we've talked about uh, and all of your fun places where people can find you online and learn from the great Brian Matias. Well, thank you very much, Don. (laughs) All right. Thanks to everybody for listening to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Now it's time to get out and shoot. (music) 